It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Casey Shaw. I've been with you before. If you're new here, uh, welcome to Battleground Community Church. Um, I am actually the church planning pastor to Mount Holly at Parkwood Baptist Church in Gastonia. But it is a joy to gather with you this morning and share in God's word and song uh, together. It's, a, it's an exciting day in particular at Parkwood Baptist Church in Gastonia, at Battleground Community Church in Kings Mountain, and at Seven Oaks Church in Lake Wiley, North Carolina, as all three sister churches are beginning a series together on gospel-centered community this morning. Uh, it's a six-week series, and, and I just want to make a few opening observations regarding this particular series, especially this particular text this morning. I, the first one is, I cannot think of a more important study for the church right now than gospel-centered community that will come out as we walk through this passage. Second observation I want to throw out is Acts 2 42 through 47, just as we prepare our hearts and minds for this passage, is a beautiful snapshot portrait of biblical community. What we don't see in Luke's picture here is the messiness that inevitably comes with community. I say that to say you could easily read this passage as I have done and think, well, that's not what my growth growth group looks like, so I'm going to bail. My growth group's a whole lot more dysfunctional than this. Uh, Keep reading Acts and you will see dysfunction. You will see drama, but you will inevitably see God's glory and purpose through it all. And the third observation as we begin this morning is the culture that we live in is very different from the early church culture that we're going to find ourselves in this morning. We live in an extremely busy, individualistic culture. They didn't. They didn't. So with that said, we must not use our culture as an excuse to not live in community. We must rather be strategic with our time and make every effort to prioritize life together as God's people. And so with that... I'd like to read God's Word. I invite you to stand as we read God's Word together. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, Luke writes, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray together. God, this is your word. We are your people. And so I pray that you would grant us hearts to submit under the teaching of your word this morning. Would you sanctify your church? Would you give us a heart for gospel-centered community this morning? 
ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. This is such a compelling picture of gospel-centered community. John Calvin wrote of Acts 4, a similar picture. He said, you must have hearts as hard as iron if you are not moved by this image. And I would say that the same thing about our Acts 2. We, we, we've got to be moved. Even if you're in the room this morning and you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you still have got to be moved by this image, by this picture of community. So let, let's catch up to where we are in Acts. Let's do a little bit of uh, context here. So in Acts, the beginning of the Acts, we have the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has come. Then Peter preaches this awesome Christ-exalting sermon. The difference between scared Peter and bold Peter is the Holy Spirit. Peter now has the Holy Spirit Every believer now has the Holy Spirit living within them. So Peter stands up and preaches this Christ-exalting sermon. Then 3,000 people were saved in Acts 2.41. And you think, wow, let's just send Peter on the speaking circuit. Fill every Colosseum around here. This is where it's at. Let's start the Peter crusade. But that's not what Luke directs our attention to. Luke directs our attention to the church that is now created as a result of the salvation that God has extended to 3,000 new people. And so that's where we find ourselves. We see biblical community on display in Acts 2, 42 through 47. So I want to highlight three marks of biblical community. The first one is biblical community is marked by reverent submission to God. Biblical community is marked by reverent submission to God. Look at verse 42 and 43. It says that they, that is the 3,000 that were just saved and the other believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I highlight reverent submission to God based off of what they have seen, what they are experiencing. Not only the believers, but the surrounding community is filled with awe in verse 43. That word awe means fear or reverence. They are stunned by what they see. There is nothing, there has never been a community that has existed like this before. They are seeing signs and wonders done through the apostles. Giving evidence and authority to their teaching. Showing that their teaching is true. That it is of God. And therefore, this community, the early church, now devotes themselves to four things. I want to highlight three of them in this first point. The first one is the Word. They were devoted to the Word. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, it says. Now, that word devoted, that's an important word. It means intense, sustained effort. Not just something that they liked, it's something that they constantly committed themselves to. They were diligent in giving themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to sound doctrine. This was the heart of Jesus. If you remember in Matthew 28, 
one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples before he left, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. This was the heart of Paul as well, multiple times in the New Testament. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this. Paul tells Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Paul again tells Timothy in chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. One of the primary roles of the apostle was to instruct the church in how to follow Jesus. And the beautiful thing is we now possess the apostolic teaching in our very laps, recorded for us in the New Testament. In our very laps sits that which has been breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that we may be equipped and competent for every good work. We have this. We have the very thing that the early church devoted themselves to with an intense, committed devotion. So brother or sister, is your life individually marked by devotion to this word? Or rather, brothers and sisters, is our life together marked by devotion to this word? I grew up, the first 18 years of my life, I grew up in the Methodist church. And I don't want to say anything negative about a denomination or a particular local church, but I visited Parkwood in Gastonia uh, when I was 18 with my then girlfriend, now wife. Sorry, I didn't tell you I was going to highlight you. Um, I'm not. Moving on to the Word. I walked in, and I didn't bring a Bible because at my last church, you didn't need to do that. They would tack on a verse or two. I don't mean to say they didn't use the Bible. But you didn't need to bring it and look at it and see it. And I felt really out of place. Wandered up to the balcony, sat there. People stand up, stood up. We read the Word and the pastor explained the Word. And I walked away totally changed for the rest of my life. And people, people at my former church would ask me, Why did you leave? Is it because their music is all, you know, guitars and drums and all that stuff? I was like, no. It's because of the Word. It's because they were devoted to the Word. And that's... We're not devoted to the Word. This is foundational to our very existence as the church. Faith comes from hearing, hearing the Word of Christ. There is no saving faith. There is no growing faith without the Word. And the early church was devoted to the word but secondly they were also devoted to the lord's supper see in verse 42 they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread notice the definite article here in verse 42 that's not there in verse 46 verse 46 it says day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes I think, and there is some debate regarding this, I think Luke is highlighting the early church's devotion to the Lord's Supper in verse 42, and he's discussing basic meals in verse 46. I believe the early church highly esteemed that which Jesus instituted to be done in remembrance of Him. The early church devoted themselves together to the most visible reminder of Jesus' body broken for us and Jesus' blood shed for us. And so the discussion here, the emphasis 
on the highlighting the breaking of bread is not to argue when to take the Lord's table, how to take the Lord's table, but it's, Luke is emphasizing the Christ-centered nature of this community. They devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching, the verbal reminder of what Christ has done, but also the Lord's Supper and the visible reminder of what Christ has done. They were a Christ-centered community devoted to the Word, devoted to the Lord's Supper, but they were also devoted to prayer in verse 42. It says they devoted themselves to the prayers. Again, another definite article. Likely devoted to formal prayers and informal prayers. The early church was a praying church. Not only were they devoted to verbal reminders of what Jesus has done and visible reminders of what Jesus has done, they were devoted to running in prayerful dependence to this Jesus who is alive and well and who possesses all authority in heaven on earth. They understood that this Jesus is with His church always and they had unlimited access to a God who has unlimited resources and absolute authority. It doesn't get any better than that. That's what prayer is. We have that gift. The early church was devoted to crying out in total dependence to a God who can do whatever He wants, who is totally sovereign. Jesus told His disciples not only to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, but I am with you always to the end of the age and all authority is mine in heaven and on earth. That's the Jesus we get to cry out to. That's the Jesus they were devoted to in prayer. To neglect prayer is to cut off the very branch that you are sitting on. We can do nothing apart from Jesus. Nothing. The early church knew this. And they were devoted to this together. Second mark, biblical community. Biblical community is marked by radical commitment to God's family. I think this is the heart of this passage. I think this is the most compelling part of this passage, but often I think the most neglected practically for us as the church. And I want to highlight three things they shared together. The first thing they shared together was time. Verse 44, Luke writes, and all who believed were together. I stop right there. Don't miss the togetherness of this passage. From verse 42 to 47, all of it is together. Their devotion to the Word is together. Their devotion to the breaking of bread is together. Their devotion to the prayers is together. Jesus did not save these people to then go about their own isolated individualistic ways. He saved them into a new community, into His own family. They not only possessed shared belief, shared doctrine, shared core values, they possessed shared time. They committed themselves to shared time. It says in verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. That is such a beautiful picture. Here we see a rhythmic commitment to one another as the body of Christ. Both publicly in worship and privately in worship. 
Verse 46 gives us a picture of consistent, committed community. <coughs> Sidebar. In working towards planting a church in Mount Holly, often I have people tell me, hey, we're in, what, what do you need us to do? And I appreciate the enthusiasm and the willingness, but people don't always like my response because my response is, I need you to be consistently committed to community in Mount Holly. That's what I need from you. I don't have a tangible thing. I don't need you to put on this finance seminar in hopes that lost people will come and hear the gospel through Dave Ramsey. Not that that's bad, but that's not what I need you to do. I need you to be consistently committed to life together as the church. We don't know what to do with that always. It's just sort of vague and intangible and, and mundane and ordinary and it doesn't feel special but it is so significant notice here in this passage in verse 46 church is not something you attend as an individual spectator but something that we are together as the body of Christ it's worth noting here this is not verse 46 in particular this is not 100% prescriptive Okay, don't walk away from verse 46 and think, well, day by day, I got to be going to church stuff with my friends and having people over. I have growth group every day, really. We're having Bible studies and meals every day. I don't have time for that. I don't think that is what Luke intends to communicate. What I do think he is prescribing here is the prioritization of time together. The prioritization of constant interaction. We tend to view our time as our own without little, if any, thought to the body of Christ. We do. Billy Graham said once, give me five minutes with a person's checkbook and I'll show you their heart. As I was reflecting on that, I thought, I'd like to add and say, give me five minutes with a person's calendar and I'll show you their heart. Where we find our identity is what will shape our lives and our time. And if, if you believe the cheap gospel that says it costs you nothing to come to Jesus and nothing to follow Jesus, then your calendar will reflect you. Because Jesus is just one little addition onto your already busy life. But if you believe the real gospel that says it costs you nothing to come to Jesus, but it costs you everything to follow Him, that your life is not your own, for you were bought with a price, then your calendar will look like Jesus' calendar. And Jesus' calendar was totally others-oriented. Jesus' calendar was living as the church together while reaching the city together. That's what Jesus' calendar was. And I can't think of a busier human being that has ever lived. God. The sovereign one over all the universe that upholds every molecule by the word of His power. This was His calendar. His calendar was the church together reaching the city together. Our busy lives don't seem so busy when we look at Jesus. Our priorities don't always 
line up the way they should when we look at the priorities of Jesus. Which brings up our next point. Not only did they share time, they shared purpose. I skipped a devotion earlier in verse 42, what they were devoted to. It says they were devoted to the fellowship. I bring this particular devotion up now to highlight the fact that their time together was not merely hanging out. The fellowship implies time, but it's deeper than that. It's purposeful time. It's strategic time. They've put forth intense, sustained effort to purposefully being together. And I thought, well, what does that look like? What does fellowship work out, look like? That's kind of a, a Christian-y word that we just throw around. And if you're new to the faith or, or if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, you might not even know what that word is. We just sort of throw it around. It's like a synonym for potluck dinner and, you know, game night or whatever. Hebrews brings such good clarity as to what fellowship is. Hebrews chapter 3, if you've got a Bible, turn there. Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 10, I think, so clearly define what our fellowship should be about. What our time together should be about. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. The writer says... But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. We. Notice the collective language. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We need people to exhort us every day so that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We must exhort one another every day so that our brothers and sisters will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10 gives us even more clarity. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. This famous passage, the writer says, and let us consider, that means to think in advance how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's, that's biblical fellowship. That's gospel fellowship. In other words, fellowship is consistent commitment to gather with one another for the purpose of encouraging one another to keep the faith. We need people to come alongside us, put their arm around us, and say, keep trusting Jesus. Keep going, man. Keep going, sister. You need a brother in your life when you're going through hard times in your marriage and you pull in the driveway after an anxious, stressful day, and you know that all that awaits you in the home is more stress and chaos and anxiety. You need a brother who will speak into your life and say, follow Jesus in there, man. Don't leave. Jesus is in that home. Love her as Christ loved the church. Some new moms or moms in general, 
that are about to pull their hair out because of their children. Children are a blessing of the Lord. They need some older mamas who've walked through it to say those little mundane, insignificant moments where you are cleaning up that mess for the 700th time is worth it. Keep following Jesus, little sister. We need each other. John Piper said, this is, this is a sobering quote. He said, every exchange with others counts for eternity. We are either weakening people's affections for God or strengthening them. So ask yourself, who this morning might God be calling you to encourage? Who this morning might be five minutes away from walking away from Jesus and they need you to say, keep going, brother. Who in your growth group might God be calling you to take to lunch this week for the purpose of stirring them up to love and good works? How do you approach and prepare for gathering with God's people? Is it burdensome? Is it boring? Is it just too time consuming? You just want to get it over with, check the box. I did the church thing back to Monday morning. Let's go. Or do you approach it as, I didn't really get anything out of that. Maybe you didn't. Maybe that's not what God's calling you to. Is more blessed to give than to receive anyways. Brothers and sisters, do you see the purpose of gathering as God's people? Do you see the blessing of gathering as God's people? Do you realize that we need each other to keep pressing on? Not only did they share time, not only was their time shared and purposeful, but their resources were shared as well. Verse 44 to 46, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. What a picture. Now, shared resources, that might like trigger something in you to think, what? is this like Christian communism? What is going on here? I don't think Luke is... Encouraging this, I don't think uh, the apostles established some unwritten law that your stuff wasn't yours anymore and that you just put it all in a pile and they decide how the community uses it. Even if you keep reading, Ananias and Sapphira were killed. They withheld some of their proceeds. But the issue was not that they withheld it. The issue was deceit and sin in their own hearts. What Luke is describing here is willing sacrifice, willing and glad sacrifice. This is a picture of the culture that the gospel creates among God's people. Joyful generosity. That's what we see here. The early church had come to realize that if the God who has all things at his disposal can stoop so low as to bear our sin on the cross and give us his righteousness by faith, which is the greatest thing you and I could ever receive, then they can hold their stuff with an open hand to be used for the good of God's family, their own brothers and sisters. Have we come to realize that? Have you come to realize that if Jesus 
can just set aside his, the glories of heaven, stoop down onto earth as a baby, take our sin, our shame, our guilt, our punishment on himself, and then exchange, give us his righteousness, then our stuff is just, God's got it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. Our stuff is to be used for the good of our brothers and sisters. It's not our stuff at the end of the day. That's why we give. Third mark of biblical community. Biblical community is marked by respectable community engagement. Biblical community is marked by respectable community engagement. Now, what I'm really saying here is biblical community is marked by missions. But I didn't use the word missions, number one, because I'm trying to be a good Baptist and use alliteration. But number two is, I think our minds go to unhelpful places sometimes when we say the word missions. I'm pro-missions, I'm pro the word missions. But I think sometimes we think missions, we think of something out there. Money that we give some to. Trips that we go on. But not where we are right now in the mundane, ordinary life here at Kings Mountain. That's mission. The only difference between you and a missionary in Central Asia is that you're a missionary here, they're a missionary there. Culture, context is a bit different, but we still ought to approach life the exact same way for the glory of Jesus. The early church was a missional church. They were an evangelistic church. They engaged their community, not with cheesy road signs or awkward door-to-door gospel track conversations. They, as a community of believers, engaged the community around them. They were a captivating community. Look at verse 47. It says, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It says they had favor with all the people. This means that they were respected in the community. I find that stunning because Jesus promises persecution. And we don't want to throw persecution out because it's coming in the book of Acts. It's about to arrive and it's only going to intensify. But for right now, they are respected. And I would argue even in the midst of persecution, the church ought to be respected Clearly, this community was unlike anything anyone had seen. The surrounding community favored the early church, and they were in awe of the early church, as we saw in verse 43. This is a cool story. A man by the name of Julian the the Apostate. His name's a great name. Terrible name, actually. He was Constantine's nephew. And Constantine basically normalized Christianity in Rome. Got rid of the persecution. Julian was raised... He had a... Great theological education. He eventually, though, converted to paganism. He became emperor of Rome in 361 AD, and he wanted to transition Rome back to worshiping the gods and goddesses of their former time. So in his mission to convert Rome back to paganism, he sought to inquire as to why is Christianity so successful? What are they doing right that we pagans are not doing right. And it wasn't that Constantine normalized it. It wasn't that he made it mainstream. Here's what he wrote to his pagan friend. 
It is their, the Christians, benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead and the holiness of their lives that have done the most to increase atheism. He called Christianity atheism. When the impious Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Here's what he's saying. The Christians take better care of our own people than we take care of our own people. That's why they were respected in the community. Christians not only should love and serve one another well, but should love and serve the lost world better than the lost world serves its own. Because we have a framework and a worldview that is unlike anything. Christians ought to be the only people on the planet that live with the mentality, it is not about me. It's about Jesus. I'm called to simply love God and love my neighbor and forget myself. God will take care of me. You think, well, what about me? Am I not going to get taken care of? What about my needs? God is asking that question. God is taking care of that question. You don't have to. God is giving us a mission. Love me. Love the people I put in your life. It's pretty simple. And do that together with God's family. With your family. This was the early church. So I asked the sobering question that I think every local church should ask. And I ask it to you. If Battleground Community Church disappeared tomorrow, would the community of Kings Mountain miss you? I don't mean if you lost this facility. I mean that if every person in this room moved tomorrow, would the community of Kings Mountain miss you? And ultimately, you have to answer that. My prayer is that they would miss you deeply. That there would be a massive hole in the community of Kings Mountain if you weren't here. But my prayer is that there would be massive blessing in the community of Kings Mountain because you are here. The early church was a captivating community respected by the watching world. They were also a disciple-making community. This community was a compelling community that made disciples. It says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And you think, wow, what was their evangelism strategy? The Lord just saved 3,000 people. And now he's adding day by day those who are being saved. Read the book of Acts. It gets up into the big thousands real quick. How many people are saved? You think, what did they do? What kind of evangelism explosion classes did they offer? I would offer that they probably had zero evangelism strategy. I think that verses 42 through 46 was their evangelism strategy. The watching world knew they were Jesus' disciples because of the way they loved one another. And Jesus blessed that and added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. I think that's what they gave themselves to. A British pastor wrote this, evangelism is not that ordinary Christians live good lives that enable them to invite friends to evangelistic events. That's how we've seen evangelism or viewed evangelism for the last several decades. Just live a pretty good life, invite my friend to the crusade or to church, which is not bad. 
by any means. Here's what he went on to write. Our lives, our lives are the evangelistic events. Our life together as the church is the apologetic. Our life as a gospel-centered community together is the compelling factor that makes the world think something's different about them. It's because God is there. This writer went on to write, the world can dismiss one individual righteous Christian, but it cannot dismiss a distinct group of people who love each other like Jesus. That's good. That's really good. It can't. We cannot live out the gospel in isolation. There are 58 one another's in the scriptures, in the New Testament. You can't live out the New Testament without one another. It's impossible. How are we going to love each other like Christ loved if there's no one to love? How are we going to extend patience the way Christ did if there's no one to extend patience? If there's no one in your life that gets on your nerves? We need each other to live the gospel. Another quote, when the early church said that God cared, when they communicated that to a watching world, the world believed it because the care they gave their own demonstrated that God cared. Their lives together validated the gospel that they proclaimed. It said, Jesus is real. So, I close with this question. Is my Christianity marked by isolated individualism or life together in the body of Christ? Is my Christianity marked by isolated individualism or life together in the body of Christ? I use that, I've used that phrase over and over again, life together. I stole it from a German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a little bitty book called Life Together. I encourage you to read it. Turn to Ephesians 5. As you're turning there, I want to say a few things. Ephesians 5, the marriage passage actually. An honest confession. I know I'm young. Probably a lot of you in the room have walked with Jesus far longer than I have. But I, I have to say that in... The last eight years of vocational ministry that I've been involved with, I think most of the problems in the local church stem from a misunderstanding of what the local church is. If you peel back the onion, it's just a misunderstanding of what we are together, who we are together. Everybody affirms this probably. If you're a follower of Christ, you probably... In your brain affirm this, but this has got to soak down into our very hearts. We don't go to church as individual spectators. We are the church together. I know that we all think, yep, that's right. I cannot tell you how many times I've been asked, where's your church going to be in Mount Holly? 
I say, in Mount Holly. When's it starting? Well, there are Christians that are gathering right now in homes in the community. So now, actually, we've technically not had a worship service in a church facility, but the church is there. We, we, we mentally affirm, yes, we don't go to church. We are the church. Do we really embrace this reality? We are the church together. This means church is not one category in our already busy lives. This means that church is the one thing that we are together forever and ever, which means a radical reorientation of our priorities. I'm going to say that again because that's a packed statement, but I mean it with everything in me. Church is the one thing that we are forever and ever, which means a radical reorientation of priorities. You name anything that you are right now. When you breathe your last, it's done. You're not that anymore. When you breathe your last in Jesus Christ, the only thing that you are right now, forever and ever, will be the church. The bride of Christ together. That should give you joy and it should also cause us to rethink every aspect of our life because that's the lens in which the early church saw themselves. You might think, well, that's great, but I got a lot of other responsibilities. I wear a lot of hats. We've got to be careful of waffling up our lives into little waffle slots. That's what I do. I, I like to do that. Consider Jesus. He wears the God hat. And all that that comes with. Here's how much he prioritizes the church. Ephesians 5. We often think of this as the husband-wife passage. But listen to how many times Paul connects it to the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for the church. That he might sanctify the church, having cleansed the church by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such, that the church might be holy and without blemish. Skip on down to verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Verse 32, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The intimacy and commitment wrapped up that we associate with marriage is connected to how Christ prioritizes and values and esteems His church. Not building His people that He has called to Himself. If this is the way Jesus views His church, do you not think that ought to shape the way we view our brothers and sisters in Christ? 
Should we not die to ourselves daily for the good of our brothers and sisters? Should we not labor together for the growth of our brothers and sisters? Should we not sacrifice our resources to take care of our brothers and sisters? Should we not give our lives to being the church together? I close with this quote, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. That's a sweet thought. So let's walk in God's grace together as the church as a watching world sees our love for one another and gives glory to God in heaven. Let's pray together. God, I pray that we would really believe that it is grace that you allow us to live in community with one another. God, would you sanctify us in this truth, in this reality? Would you give us grace to love one another to the glory of your name and the good of our brothers and sisters? Would you, would you do a work so compelling the community here at Kings Mountain Battleground Community Church the watching world, that the surrounding community of Kings Mountain looks at Battleground Community and Church and thinks, God is with them. God, would you grow us? Would you sacrifice? In Jesus' name, amen.